0: Love is in the air, and there are few things that I love more than a profitable restaurant. What's your plan to ensure that this Valentine's Day is your most profitable yet? Connect with the Yelp for Restaurants restaurant expert to gain access to the tools and tactics you need to have a banner Valentine's Day. Visit restaurants.yelp.com to start planning today. Now here we Go.
1: Nobody would loan us money and we'd end up having to pinch pennies and build equipment and then as soon as we'd get some more demand, I'd buy another tank and install the tank and then we'd sell more beer and then I'd make a little more money. I mean, it was just a constant expansion cycle, piece by piece.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Ken Grossman is a craft brewing pioneer. In the late 70s, he, along with about half a dozen other brewers, started the first craft breweries in the US. Over 40 years later, the other guys are no longer in business and Ken's company is worth over a billion dollars. In today's conversation, we talk about what it took to survive in those early days and the critical decisions he made along the way to become the king of craft brewing.
1: Around 1969 or so, I was making a little bit of beer in my closet in my bedroom, and I ended up moving to Chico in 1972 and continued to make beer at home and enrolled in the chemistry program at our local junior college and started studying the science of brewing as much as the hobby of brewing, and then opened up my homebrew supply store in 1976, sort of at the really early years of serious homebrewing in America. People have been making beer at home since before Prohibition, during Prohibition, I'm sure. But as far as serious homebrewing, it really hadn't gained a lot of traction. There wasn't a lot of information. There certainly wasn't a lot of great ingredients like we have today available on the homebrew level. And so part of opening the homebrew shop was really to cater to my own interest in making beer and also try to promote brewing beer at home and making wine at home and the whole Sort of craftsmanship, part of the culinary arts. I made cheese. We had goats uh, for many years and chickens, and I baked bread and did all those sorts of things. And beer making just fit in with it, sort of in the same vein.
0: Well, with that homebrew shop, that was basically your first business. What lessons did you learn running that small shop that you carried throughout your entire career?
1: You know, actually, I started running a business before the homebrew shop, so I was given the keys to a very, very small bicycle shop in Oroville, California. And I ended Mm -hmm. up moving to the town of Oroville and it was a one person shop. So I did everything. And so I got a taste of running my own show, no employees at that point, but I did learn about paying attention to where my money was going and not being extravagant with spends. And I had the full responsibility of running that shop by myself and making money at it. And so I I got a pretty good taste for what it took to run a small business. And then when I opened the homebrew shop, it was a very small business, so total investment of $3,000 to get the doors open. But it really wasn't enough of a money-making venture that I could have sustained my growing family at that point. A couple of years of that, I realized I needed to do something more significant if I was going to stay in the brewing industry. And so wrote a business plan to open a small brewery. I went to Sonoma, California and saw New Albion. I went down and visited Fritz Maytag, who, a little different story, he bought an existing older brewery and learned how to brew beer and put money into it and sort of rebuilt the brand and changed the nature of beer in America. He was probably one of the most uh, influential people back in that era. So l- learned some lessons. And certainly I was not very sharp in my business plan it really was not the reality once we got the doors open things cost a lot more you know making money at 1500 barrels a year was a real struggle and my peers at that time and there were six of us who opened up between 1976 and 1981 and out of the six fiber out of business today and we're the only one surviving from that early exploration of brewing beer on a small scale But most everybody was struggling with all the challenges of supply chain, distribution, getting consumers to appreciate what we were brewing because it was so different than the mainstream beers at the time. So we had to educate the consumers and we had to educate the retailers and store owners and restaurants. And then we had to get somebody to distribute our beer if we went out of our hometown. And at least in California, we were able to self-distribute. So that was one thing that allowed us to get a, a little toehold in our community.
0: Talk to me about that moment in time when you transitioned from the shop to the brewery and not necessarily as an entrepreneur, but like as a father, as a husband. The reason I ask is in 2020, so many of us, myself included, found themselves like transitioning. Their career out of necessity. And it's a scary time. It's a difficult thing to do. Success isn't guaranteed. Can you talk to me about the mindset that you had in that moment and how it carried you through those early days and early years? Sure.
1: I got to a point where I was running the homebrew shop, I was working in the bike shop, and I actually had the opportunity to buy the bike shop I had been managing or managed earlier on. And at the same time, I was thinking, I need to do something different than running a homebrew shop if I'm going to stay making beer for a livelihood. So I went into the decision with two directions. I could either do something I was very knowledgeable and comfortable with, which was fixing, repairing and selling bicycles, or I could do something that I had very little clue on how to run a brewery, how to distribute beer. I didn't know anything really about the commercial brewing industry. And I made a conscious decision that if I took the bike shop job and ended up buying that, I'd probably be kicking myself for the rest of my life. So it was one of those, I know I can succeed by running a bike shop, but I don't know that I would be satisfied running a bike shop. And talked to my wife and she said, do whatever you think is going to make you happy. And if you want to take a gamble at doing the brewery, give it a go. So I went all in at that point, once I decided to do that. And, That was not an easy period in my life, and I've had some difficult ones over the years. So I was going to classes. I re-enrolled back at the junior college in everything I thought I would need to succeed as a small brewer. So business classes. I took refrigeration repair classes. They offered a program there. I took a lot of welding and fabrication because I knew I'd be having to build much of my own equipment. There were no suppliers back in, in the late 70s. So I took all these skills courses and I worked very hard at building the equipment and also kept working at the bike shop to pay the bills. So it was a 7-day a week commitment for several years. And we were so underfunded that we ended up doing everything ourselves. The sheetrocking, I did all the plumbing, I did all the electrical, I did all the refrigeration, and we did the framing, you know, painting, you name it. And I did all the welding and when we first started up, I did all the brewing and all the packaging. So it was a 100% commitment. And that went on for many years. And, and so I think we tried harder, worked harder, and I see that happen a, a fair amount in a lot of startup businesses. It's, it's so much harder than you expect, and the challenges are often daunting that people just can't stick with it long enough to see themselves through those really difficult periods of time that are invariably going to happen with a startup business in an industry that really had no track record at that point.
0: You were pioneering an entirely new market segment, but I'm curious, as you were conceptualizing this and rolling it out, did you have a role model? Were there other business owners or other brewers that you looked to and emulated?
1: Well, if you go back to that period in the brewing industry, there was only 43 breweries in America, and most of those were the legacy brewers. And I pretty early on at the urging of Fritz Maytag, I joined the What was referred to at the time as the Brewers Association of America had since merged into the Brewers Association and is now a bit of a different organization. But it was where small brewers came together. And the conferences would have roughly 30 brewers, pretty much all the small breweries in America at the time would come to those. So that was a place to come together and talk and learn and also make friendships and have some camaraderie. So there were a number of brewers that certainly were there to help. And that, uh, at the time, even included some of the big brewers. You know, the brewmasters would talk to you if you had a technical problem. So there was a pretty decent camaraderie across the whole industry.
0: In the early days, you talk about doing everything, but you doing everything doesn't scale. Can you talk to me about the transition from working in your business to working on your business? And what did delegation look like throughout that transition?
1: So I turned from being the brewer packaging person. One day, I just realized this is not going to work as far as somebody needs to drive the growth of the company for us to be able to get to a sustainable volume. And so I uh, delegated actually two of my employees. I said, "Okay, you're in charge of brewing and you're in charge of packaging. And I delegated those two big responsibility areas. And then I turned to focusing totally on expansion. And so my role for the next 20, 25 years was really focused on growing the company. And that was mainly by figuring out how to brew more and more beer and making a few new varieties and being involved in sort of expanding our portfolio. But I was more of the let's get it brewed and our single salesperson at the time, he was astute to the fact that he said, "You know, there's receptive distributors in Washington D.C. and Colorado, and these markets, Oregon, Washington, and let's grow why we can." And so we were very opportunistic. We didn't have this master plan and big vision to conquer the country, but we were opportunistic when we were contacted by a distributor and said, "I want your beer," and we were then sending beer to all these far off regions with little or no market support, which is is something you can't do today and survive. But back in the mid to late 80s, we wouldn't be sold in every grocery store, but we would be sold in especially liquor stores or a restaurant that featured unique emerging craft beers that were coming on the scene. And so we sort of took advantage of that demand and we grew to roughly 10,000 barrels at my original little home-built brewery. And we were that point probably in 10 or 15 states so a little bit of beer spread across the country and we sort of seeded the markets and there got to be some buzz and we got written up in the village voice and san francisco examiner and quite a few free publicity uh, kinds of articles about this little boutique craft brewery and chico that was making interesting beers And so we took advantage of that free publicity and free push. to sort of fed those market expansions. And that got us to a point that we could then borrow some money. We got our first bank loan in 87. And we did a pretty significant expansion. And at that time, we were growing 30 to 50% a year, most of that by geographical expansion, although we were certainly still growing pretty steadily in California. And then we did get into grocery stores and supermarkets and widened our distribution footprint. And at that point, the industry was starting to take off and the wholesale beer distributors were becoming
0: interested in sort of this new phenomenon of uh, craft beer. If you're as obsessed with food as I am, then you're going to love this sponsor. What if I told you there's a credit card that's made for food lovers? Well, foodies, meet the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you'll get four times the points on restaurant deliveries, takeout orders, and dine-in brunches, lunches, or dinners. Plus, Altitude Go gets you two times the points on groceries, yes, even delivery, streaming services, and gas station purchases. Apply to become an Altitude Go cardholder at usbank.com slash Altitude Go. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, Pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc., some restrictions may apply. Let's get back to that German brew house because it's a super interesting story that I think really speaks to both your mindset, a level of optimism, and your palate for risk or your appetite for risk. You bought it in 1983, you had it shipped over, and you couldn't afford to install it until you got that loan in 1987. In the years between 1983 and 1987, when you saw this entire brewery sitting in crates, did you question that decision? Because, I mean, it was a massive expense that didn't pay off for an exceptional period of time.
1: Yeah, I guess it was a big reality check. and It did send us to, I guess, looking at how we could finance it and grow the company more quickly. And during that early era, there were—that's when Boston Beer started up, and Pete's Wicked Ale, and Red Hook, and a few other small breweries started up a few years after us. And their business models—in the case of Boston Beer and Peace Wicked Ale—they didn't own a brewery; they just contracted all the beer up. And we could see that they could grow just by ordering more beer. And for mm-hmm. us to make like more beer, I had to build the equipment, or you know, find the equipment, or scrounge it up, or do whatever. And so we did a. I guess, a number of reality checks. Geez, are we on the right path? Look how difficult our path is versus these other guys who were contract brewing beer. And we toyed with the idea a number of times as we were struggling to get capacity because we needed a certain amount of profit to get a bank to loan us money. And if you were a banker in 1980 and you looked at the U.S. brewing industry for small breweries, it was a horrible investment. Uh, Small breweries were losing money and closing left and right. And so the model that Boston Beer and Peace Quicken Ale had was, you know, they'd buy the beer for X and sell it for Y and spend money on marketing. And we spent all of our money on building capacity and we didn't have any money for marketing. And so we would revisit the, geez, are we doing the right thing by trying to bootstrap our growth? And again, nobody would loan us money and we'd end up having to pinch pennies and build equipment. And then as soon as we'd get some more demand, I'd buy another tank and install the tank and then we'd sell more beer and then I'd make a little more money. I mean, it was just a constant expansion cycle piece by piece. So not really a very efficient or easy way to grow. And so in the end, I think our approach was difficult, but probably allowed us to keep our ownership intact and to not cross that line. So we made a conscious decision where we're just going to figure out what we needed to do to get enough volume in order to get a bank to loan us money one day. And it eventually happened.
0: You have a really unique perspective on competition. Instead of trying to destroy other craft brewers, you've worked to elevate the whole market segment, principally through in-person events. And I think the restaurant industry could learn a ton from that perspective. How did you land on such an enlightened belief?
1: It probably goes back to when I first started in the industry that the camaraderie of my competitors, and I mentioned the Brewer Association of America back then, we would get together as competitors and we would talk about how to survive in this world and, and how to be competitive. And in most cases, at least then, we weren't in each other's backyard so much. We had regions and geographies that were distinct. So it was easier to help your competitor then. As the industry grew, I think we realized and we've had some challenges over the years with quality and consistency and supply chain. And so we realized that in order to really have this be a viable industry, we better all make good beer. And so I got quite active in the Brewers Association after it merged. And I headed up the technology group for the Brewers Association and worked on initiatives such as draft quality, which does spill over into the restaurant industry pretty heavily. And I brought together Anheuser-Busch and Miller and a bunch of my peers, smaller brewers, to work together on an industry document, a fairly comprehensive draft quality manual to benefit the beer drinker, the consumer, the retailer, the bar owner, the restaurant owner, with the idea that it would help us all as an industry be competitive against wine and spirits and other alcoholic beverages. And I tried to do that initiative initially through another industry group that was mainly big brewers. And I went to the uh, president at the time of the largest brewer in America and uh, at a meeting, I said, I think all of us have had our beers suffer with uh, lack of cleaning of systems, lack of uh, knowledge and understanding of draft quality. It's affected every one of our beers and therefore every one of our consumers in a negative way. And so if we could raise the quality of all beer, it would certainly help the consumers appeal going to a restaurant and having a beer, or going to a draft house and having a draft. And at that point in time, he felt it was a competitive advantage that they had over their competitors and did not want to join forces. And it took maybe three or four more years and I tried again. And the second attempt, they realized, yeah, this is a problem that we're facing as an industry. And the more we can do together to improve beer quality, the better it'll be for our consumers. And today we've got over 8,000 breweries, and certainly there is a more competitive situation, and not everybody is as willing to share.
0: Work-life balance has been a hot topic over the last year. And as you were building a billion-dollar company, were you able to achieve any semblance of balance as you grew your family and your business at the same time?
1: Uh, Extremely difficult. I would say I did not do a great job there, and I still struggle with it. Even though I'm semi-retired, I work a lot of hours, so I don't have as regular of hours, but I still do put in quite a bit of time. I love what I'm doing, both from the product we produce as well as just the technical challenges of doing what we do. The innovation and creativity of owning and running a brewery is very rewarding.
0: Your kids run the company now, and I'm curious to know, What lessons did you impart to them when they began to take a leadership role in the business?
1: Well, they've all been around the company for pretty much their whole lives. And so they've worked in various positions throughout the company, all all of them. My daughter started washing dishes. She uh, hosted, she bust. She worked in the restaurant for a number of years. My son scrubbed fermenters, worked in the shop and, and did other brewing related jobs. So they've grown up. Seeing what Dad does, and when we were putting the packaging lines in here in Chico, maybe close to twenty years ago now, we were running seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day on our old equipment, and it was wearing out. And I had installed all this new equipment, and it wasn't running yet. And I was sort of at my wits' end with Let's get this completed and finish this project. So I would bring him down here and help me wrench, and we would spend evenings or weekends or whatever would take just to keep the project moving forward as fast as it could. So they got to see sort of how difficult and how committed you had to be in order to make the company successful and to make a go of it.
0: Are there any mistakes that you made along the way that you've tried to encourage them to avoid?
1: Well, I probably made a lot of them as far as, you know, being involved with your family has its challenges. And again, the work-life balance thing probably didn't help in that I was not around as much as I would have liked to have been. I was very committed. And during some of those periods where either the competition or the demands of the facility or employees or whatever the challenges were, I would have to do overtime all the time. I didn't do that all the time, but there were years when I was working seven days a week.
0: It's an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to share?
1: Being in the restaurant business myself, I know how difficult of a business it it is. Our operation in Chico, my original vision was just to be a small little corner pub with uh, hamburgers and french fries and fish and chips. I have got my original menu and as I got more into sort of the culinary side, the hospitality side, I realized that we really needed to step up our game. If we were going to be producing world-class beer, we needed to produce world-class food. So I think from the restaurant standpoint, for us, trying you know, to do as much from scratch and trying to really focus on quality and consistency and delivering great customer experience is both in the food and in the beer. You know, hopefully we can deliver our beer to a wide range of consumers and restaurants and bars across the country, and we can handle the beer side of the experience, but certainly making sure you focus on the consumer and how to keep that consumer wanting to come back and wanting more and and really focusing on attention to detail and quality control I think is pretty critical in any business but certainly when you're interacting with people on a daily basis it really you know is important to focus on customer satisfaction
0: That's King Grossman for more on Sierra Nevada go to sierranevada.com If you want to tell us your story hear previous episodes or check out our other content Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.